All right, if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles this morning and go to Romans 6. I know we're going right into our study this morning. We're going to cover um, a lot of ground today, kind of laying the foundation. Um, I always have intentions, and I always have intentions of the directions that we're going to go with things. And um, I have been deeply burdened, um, I think, in my own life. Um, regarding this subject we're going to begin this morning. And we're going to begin an exposition of Romans 6. And Romans 6, of course, is one of uh, the Apostle Paul's writings under the inspiration of the Spirit. Um, the Apostle Paul, of course, Romans is often referred to as the, uh, the very high watermark of doctrinal soundness of uh, really what we know and learn about not only Christ our Lord, but uh, we also learn about the various aspects of our justification. Uh, we learn about sanctification, our conversion. Uh, we hear a lot about the law. We hear a lot of things that are of such vital importance. And over the last uh, couple of weeks, um, it's just been as I'm studying, as I'm preparing, about just the great need to remind us as believers um, that there is a way in which we are to live, there is a, a way in which we are to act, and I mentioned this on Wednesday, uh, we can be a very theologically um, smart, uh, we can be very intellectual, um, but if we fail to do what God's Word says, then we're just simply people with knowledge. Um, our theology certainly comes from the Word, but we also need to understand that theology isn't just for our knowledge, but theology is for our application. And so we're going to begin looking at Romans 6, and we're going to consider this subject that Paul primarily deals with in Romans 6, and we see the very context of how this begins. I want to, for our context sake and for this week, I do want us to read through this chapter because I want us to set the foundation because we're going to be in this chapter for a number of weeks looking forward. But look with me at Romans 6, chapter 1, or uh, chapter 6, verse 1, rather. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, 
and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your member servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your member servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So coming on the heels of our study of in 1 John 2 regarding primarily our assurance, one of the subjects or one of the context applications that we made is that one of the hindrances to our assurance is living in unrepentant sin. Uh, living in unrepentant sin will certainly cause your assurance to waver. To allow sin to reign, to not put sin to death, will certainly cause questions in your own assurance, am I really a child of God? And as we see Paul writing this, uh, we understand that Paul ended the fifth chapter. Again, anytime we pick up or we're not going into a, to an entire book, it's important for us to establish what Paul was dealing with when he asked these questions. And you'll notice at the end of verse 5, the, verse, the last two verses, Paul says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So the fifth chapter ends by Paul declaring these truths. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Where sin has reigned unto death, grace reigns through righteousness, notice what, unto eternal life. So Paul begins Romans 6 by asking a question. What shall we say then? What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to what Paul has been speaking of here? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, is Paul saying, because grace much more abounds, we should continue in sin to prove it. That's not what he's saying. And I'm going to show you in a moment why we know that's what Paul was asking, because this is not the first time he was dealing with this particular subject. But he says, what shall we say? What shall we say then? What inference are you and I supposed to draw from the fact that where sin abounds, grace did much more abound? What should we infer from that? What are we supposed to learn from this? Now, if we are going to 
act in our flesh or act in our wicked evilness that we can sometimes uh, enter into, are we going to be wicked enough to draw out some kind of a wicked inference by such a gracious statement? So would we actually dig deep enough into our depravity to actually turn a gracious statement into a wicked suggestion? I would answer with Paul, God forbid. God forbid that we would take a statement of grace and use it as a means to justify sin. That's what Paul's talking about. This is a statement, a gracious statement, that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So with Paul, we ask the question, should we continue in sin so that we can see, does grace really abound? That would be a terrible suggestion, and it would be terrible theology. That because grace much more abounds, well, let's put that to the test and see. But you see, every time that we use grace as a license to sin, that's what you're doing. You're taking the gracious statement of God and turning it into a license to do that which is contrary to your new nature. This is a statement of grace, not of license. This is a gracious statement that the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, it's a horrible suggestion, yet it's a suggestion that has come through many people's minds. Some people become and act depraved enough that they will do anything, they will turn any opportunity of the Word of God into an argument for why they can still sin. Now that's ultimately the overall context that Paul was dealing with. And again, as we were jumping in into Romans 6, so Romans 1 through 5, Paul's been dealing with these things. So this is not a random statement. He all of a sudden says, oh, by the way, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. He's actually been laying the foundation for the first five chapters. I know it's been a few years now, but when we went through the entire book of Romans, uh, we learned about the realities that Paul was dealing with and that there were those, uh, even in that society, that were using the gracious statement of God to justify sinful behavior. And yet Paul responds the same way every time. God forbid that we would take a gracious statement of God and use it as a license to do that which is contrary to his word. But many do look at this this way and they say, okay, this is an opportunity. It's the wicked mind that finds any license in what Paul is saying here to sin. I'm going to suggest to you by what the word of God says that Paul says only an unregenerate mind would think this way. So if you're regenerate today, if you're converted you're not going to think like this. You're not going to think, oh, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So I'll put that to the test because God says grace will much more abound. That's the thinking of an unregenerate man or woman. That's what Paul has in mind here. Now, notice this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That is the strongest rejection of a thought of something to be inferred or even considered that Paul uses such strong language. 
God forbid that it would be anything like that. That you would have any even ounce of a thought that that's what this means. Paul asked the question then, how shall we, second part of that verse, that we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The content of Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is showing us as we study through this that true believers, the we that is mentioned, mentioned here, must not continue in sin, but rather we are to live in holiness. The grace of God is not just a gracious statement. The grace of God is what makes you dead to sin. I'll say that again. It's not just a gracious statement. Grace of God is what makes you dead to sin. Without God's grace, you're still living in sin and you still want to live in sin and you're going to use every opportunity to find it. But if you be in Christ... That should not be so. That is the grace of God. Many have turned the grace of God into a license. That's not what Paul is doing at all. It is the grace of God that makes us dead to sin, and it's also the grace of God that delivers us from the power of sin. Sin is not supposed to have control over you. You are supposed to have power over sin by the grace of God. And by the word of God, it has been declared that you can have power over your sin. I can have power over my sin. This idea that we are powerless is not a biblical teaching at all. You are not helpless. You are not unable to resist sin. If, and it's a big if, if you've been saved by the grace of God. But you cannot expect someone who is unconverted, unregenerate, to live victoriously over their sin. It is impossible. But Paul is saying it is not impossible to live victorious over your sin if you have been saved by the grace of God. Grace of God is not just a doctrine. Grace is not just something we talk about as one of the pillars of what we believe. You see, it can become such a large theological idea that we forget grace is actually active. God's grace is not passive where it just kind of sits there and does nothing. It actually is effectual in the believer's life. Paul doesn't ask a question in a way that he's just saying, look, I'm just going to throw out an impossible suggestion for you. When he asked the question, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there? And he isn't asking this in a way saying, you can't do this, but I'll just mention it. No, he's saying, because you've been saved by the grace of God, you have to no longer live according to the nature of your sin. He uses terminology like mortifying. He's talking about killing sin. That old Christian cliche. Be killing sin or it's going to be killing you. It's a cliche, but it does make perfect sense. You've got to mortify the flesh. Again, we're not just to sit back and say, I marvel in God's grace. 
I love to come to church and I love to sing out of a hymn book that's entitled Hymns of Grace. I love the hymns of grace. I love what they mean to me. I love the benefits of grace. But as soon as 1245 rolls around, I'm going to walk out that door and I'm going to keep living my life the exact same way I always have. Then you do not understand grace. And I might even suggest that you may not even have been saved by grace yet. Because if that enters into your mind that once church is over, I can go back to what I was doing before I was inconveniently drawn here. It's supposed to affect and change you. The grace of God is not passive. And this isn't just like exclusive only to certain believers. Only certain believers get enough grace to not yield to the flesh. Paul is writing to anyone who's been saved by this grace that you have the power to not yield your members to unrighteousness. Not you and yourself, but the power of God which dwells in you. So what is Paul dealing with if we were to give it a heading in these first two verses? Paul simply says that believers in Christ are dead to sin. They're dead to sin. Now, does he mean that there is no sin remaining at all? No. But what he is talking about here is after he asks us the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This is in regard to a misunderstanding that many took of what the Apostle Paul says. Romans 5.20 is actually a response to what was said all the way back in Romans chapter 3, verse 8. Again, we're jumping into a study in the middle of, a, uh, of an entire book. But back in Romans 3.8, Paul makes mention of people who had made a false argument and a theologically sinful conclusion regarding this using grace as a license to sin. In Romans 3, verse 7, he says, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather... As we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Now, what Paul was saying is there were those who were slanderously reporting that we were saying one thing, but that's not what we meant at all. And he says what they're saying about us and what we've said to you is that some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. It had begun to circulate that people were saying, you know what the Apostle Paul is teaching? He's teaching that what you're really supposed to do is you are supposed to sin more so that you can see grace abound. But notice what Paul says. As we was slanderously reported. Paul would never, ever, ever come into a pulpit anywhere in the world and stand up before you and say, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us do evil so that we can see this grace abound in us. Amen. Have a great week. Paul would never, ever say that. So why would we think that we could do that? No preacher who knows the Word of God is going to come up before you and say, you know what that verse means? 
it means you're supposed to sin as much as you can because God's going to be glorified anyway and you're still going to get to heaven. It's heresy. It's also an abomination to God to misuse and abuse the grace of God that way. If in your mindset it even comes across your theological mind at all that God is okay with sin because grace much more abounds, you are still in darkness. Because that's not what he's saying at all. Now Paul, of course, goes on in Romans 3 and he deals with a lot of other subjects, but we are staying on this particular topic here. So Paul did not say that statement to excuse sin, but rather what he was trying to tell them is these statements are not a license or an excuse of, to sin, but they are meant to glorify the divine grace of God. That, like we saw in 1 John, when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. But it should be your great desire and my great desire to kill sin, to mortify it, to not let any of it live. That's what Paul has in mind here. Paul understood what it was to receive the pardon for his sin. When Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners, he wasn't doing that so that you might be magnified or that you might say, well, if Paul was such a great sinner, grace really abounded in him. No, what he is telling you that Paul, when he calls himself a chief of sinners, wants to remind you of what he really deserved and yet what the glory of divine grace did for him. And once you and I get an understanding of what divine grace really does for us, you don't want to sin. You're actually trying to avoid it. You're trying to remove those things which could lead you to sin. Not just seeing how close you can get to it without getting burned, but you're actually trying to move away from it. You're actually anticipating where that sin might already be because it's got you before. Most of us, it's not, again, and please hear me in the context here, it's not a catalog of sins. We all sin more than one type of sin, but we also all have besetting sins. You have sins that are your weakness. And the reason it keeps coming back to you and I is because you refuse to mortify the flesh and you refuse to kill it. Because there's still a part of you that likes it. There's still a part of you that still craves after it. There's still a part of you that says, listen, I don't want to give this up. And you might in the back of your mind actually use the excuse, well, but grace much more abounds. It's not an excuse to sin. It's an, it's an opportunity to magnify God's divine grace. So Paul simply says here that above all, he is going to raise his voice, not as a champion for, hey, let's do evil, but rather as a champion contender for grace. Now, one trap that we often fall into, and Paul makes mention of this, uh, Paul always dealt with people who misinterpreted the law. Paul dealt with many who simply misapplied scripture they did not 
appreciate or interpret God's word as it was supposed to be interpreted. When Paul turns this corner, he's, he's giving us something here that we have to recognize. To argue with a person who does not know the glory of divine grace, who does not understand even the implications of what sin does, they are incapable of even appreciating the reality of what you're saying to them. In other words, if you try to have a conversation about an unbelieving, unconverted, unregenerate person's misinterpretation of the Scripture, until there is a work of grace in their heart, they are incapable of understanding that. Human intellect does not unleash the grace of God. Now, God does use our intellect, but it's not your intellect that unleashes God's grace in an effectual way. That's why I said you can be very theologically strong, but yet not understand that this is to be applied. So in this chapter, chapter 6, Paul does deal with people who pervert even his rational, reasonable words that every believer here in this room says, well, we all agree, Paul would never give a license to sin. But to the unregenerate mind, they're incapable of understanding that concept. So Paul, as he asks these questions, he wants us to consider these questions. What do we say? Again, Paul is very specific. The we and the you. He's talking about those who are already converted. Again, we have to understand who the audience is in a particular chapter, in a particular part. It's interesting to me that the very last verse of the chapter we just read is a verse that we often use in evangelism, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but you notice he used that in the context of people who were already converted and sanctified when he says, for the wages of sin is death. That's remarkable that he does that. Because he's talking to people who are supposed to already be converted. And I will tell you, unless God does a work of grace in a person, you can sit before a person and you could recite Romans 6.23 to them over and over and over and over and over again. And until God does a work of grace in their heart, they are not going to comprehend even what that means. Does that mean we don't say it? That's not what I'm saying at all. Paul is writing to people who are supposed to know better about this subject of sin and not being yielded to sin. He's not writing to unbelievers in this chapter. He's writing to people who are believing and this is part of the sanctification process. So believers are dead and dead to sin. Now, this seems by Paul's writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit to be a very plausible and likely temptation. Why is Paul writing so diligently to a group of people who know God's grace, they've tasted of God's goodness, but yet Paul finds himself often having to repeat this subject over and over and over again about killing sin? Because Paul knew... And the Spirit taught him and told him what to write, exactly what God knows about us, that this temptation to use your grace as a license to sin is going to keep coming over and over and over again. And as I've said many times, sin is relentless. It doesn't 
take a break. It's nonstop, folks. And it's not always the devil's fault. It's not Eve's fault, Adam's. You and I have to deal with our own temptation to misuse, misapply, misconstrue God's grace. Not as an unbeliever, but as a person who already knows better. The people he corrected in Romans 3 slanderously reported, he said they're incapable of understanding this truth. Paul spent more time, again, take this in the context, Paul spent more time talking to believers than he really did to unbelievers. Now, we do consider Paul an evangelist, and he did preach the gospel, but do you know most of his epistles are not evangelistic epistles? They are writings to the church. So who needs to be reminded of not misusing the grace of God? Believers. People who've tasted God's graciousness, they've tasted that is good. Believers who sing Psalm 105 and speak of His marvelous works and His wonders of grace that He does to us, yet you're still going to be tempted to misuse this. So it's plausible. But it is the most vile of suggestions that that old man, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, that still resides in us, and the vilest suggestion of the devil and his angels themselves that could possibly come to us. That the sinfulness of man gives us an opportunity to display God's mercy. Now, does it do that? Yes. But Satan's logic and our sinful logic would be, well, let's then, as a result of that truth, let's commit more sin so that there's more room for grace to work. In other words, let's see how much we can sin so that we can abound in more grace. It happens more than you think it happens. Folks, look around. There are many churches who are just giving in to the sin of the culture and they're saying God is okay with this. God is fine. That sin is okay. God's changing. The church should be accepting of society's sins that are so easily now being accepted. It's okay for you to marry, if you're a man, marry another man. It's okay for you as a woman to marry another woman. It's all right for you to identify with uh, some other made-up false gender. It's okay. It's okay to be attracted to someone of the same sex as long as you don't act upon it. That's not of God. It never has been of God. It never will be of God. God has one word for those types of thinking. Repent. Repent of the mindset that you would even think for a moment that God would look at any sin, by the way, any sin, and say, just go ahead and keep doing that so you can see how much more my grace will abound. It's not just those sins that are the pictures of society now. If you and I accept our own personal sin and we don't treat it the way God says to treat the sin, 
Folks, I, I, I don't mean to be unkind today, but if you treat your own personal sin, we can amen to listen, same-sex marriage, wrong. That needs to be destroyed, taken out. But you say my sin's not that as big of a deal. You're misusing, misconstruing, and misapplying the grace of God. See, we have a real easy time of upholding the big sin of the society. And that big sin of society, it changes throughout years. And it'll, it'll rise to the top and then something else will rise up. It'll sink, something else will come up. Paul is not even necessarily doing about societal sins. He's saying this is the sin of your own heart. There's a lot of Christians want to kill the sin that's coming, that the churches are caving and giving into. But when you talk to them about their own sin, they won't even look at it. Say, yes, praise God, that should not be accepted by the church. I can't believe that church. I can't believe that organization is allowing this. What's wrong with them? Well, what's wrong with us if we will not kill that sin that keeps besetting you? See, that's the reality of it. We don't want to look in the spiritual mirror of our own heart and accept what we actually see, that we might be misusing God's grace. Grace is not just something you sing about. It's not something you theologically study. It's actually working. Grace is not passive. Believers have not learned that philosophy. That's not what we know God's Word to say. We've learned another way in which we are to respond to our sin. Paul tells us how are we to respond to even the teaching of the age that suggests that. That's where he uses the word, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You see, it is the work of God's grace that we are dead to sin. Paul describes people who are dead to sin as being only people who have been placed under grace. Where according now to the new man, they serve. Now listen carefully. According to the new man, they serve the law of God. In other words, we yield ourselves to God's laws. We want to obey God's law, not because of the old man that lives in us, but the new man that's there. That's why Paul, as we'll see over the weeks, continues to go back to this idea. Yield yourselves to this, not this. Yield yourself to righteousness, not unrighteousness. So Paul is explaining here that the believer is to live according to the new man. So what does the new man in Christ obey? He or she obeys the Word of God. Obeys the Spirit of God. The new man, again, remember, Paul's going to teach us about this, the new man and the old man. The new man does not obey the temptation of sin, no matter how alluring it is. It's not the new man that gives in to sin. It's the old man. See, what they were suggesting to Paul is that you should sin more so that grace may abound would be suggesting that the new man that dwells within you sins. It's not the new man within you that yields itself over to temptation. It's the old. 
That's, it's still there. Your old nature is still alive and well within you. And Paul is telling them, those that have the new man living within them, they know grace is never to be misused this way. Now, is Paul declaring his own sinlessness? Absolutely not. That's not what he's saying at all. But the new man doesn't obey the temptations and the allurements of sin, no matter how greatly his passions for them, how greatly he's provoked. He doesn't yield to it. So when we don't yield to our own perverse desires, we are living under grace. Sin no longer reigns in our body. When you yield to the new man, sin is no longer reigning. Is it totally dead? No. Paul is suggesting to us that sin, when sin holds it, its prey in its power, that person is living still under the law and not under grace. In other words, no matter how desperately you try to resist sin, apart from the grace of God, you are not going to find success in killing it. It's not a reformation of your life. It's a yielding to the new man. From this chapter, we see Paul will continue to repeat a couple of main ideas. Number one, we're dead to sin as believers. Now Paul always gives us, here's what we are, and as a result, here's what we do. You'll see the theme repeatedly. Dead to sin, live unto God. Dead to sin, live unto God. So he doesn't just say you're dead just for the sake of being dead. You're dead, and so you are dead to sin. Live unto God. We live unto God to signify that we do not yield to our sinful passions and sin, even though sin continues in us. Sin is still there. It's in every one of you. It's in me. Paul is teaching us that we are to yield to the new man. Be crucifying, be killing. He uses as strong a terms as you can. He doesn't use terms like, oh, just brush your sin away. Just send sin along its happy way. No, he uses terms like mortify, kill, crucify. See, the church as a whole is just kind of playing around with sin now and saying, look, we don't want to talk too much about this because it makes people mad and they leave. We don't want to talk about the reality. So we're going to use terms like, you know, it's not really that bad. You just made a mistake. No sin in the scripture does God look at it and say, oh, what was I thinking? That's just a mistake. No, that's sin. Sin that God hates. Sin that the believer in Christ should hate. Again, maybe too personal today, but the sin that easily besets you and I, do you actually really hate it? Or is there still a part of you that really enjoys it? You really still like it? Nobody else in the room knows about it. It's just between you and God. Nobody else knows you still love it. You need to kill it. 
Yeah, but you need to kill it. I, I don't have the power to kill it. If you're in Christ, by the grace of God, he says you have everything within you to not yield to that. So why do you keep yielding to it? Because you keep yielding to the old man, not the new. This is not a book of suggestions. Self-help. 12-step program that if you'll try all these things, we're told that we can have victory over this present evil world. You can have victory over the sin which continues to beset you. Not in your old man, but in the new. Galatians 5.17 tells us that the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other. Therefore, every single of the apostles, every single saint, every single believer, sin and sinful passions and sinful lusts and sinful desires remain in the body until we receive a new, glorified, sinless body. That means if you live a hundred years, you're going to spend every day fighting against the flesh and spending every day killing it. But one day, it is all going to be gone. See, we won't even really fully realize what it is and how glorious it is to be without sin until it actually is finally and eternally removed. Because we don't realize, even realize how deep sin is ingrained into us. At some point, at some time during this time, we've been looking at this scripture since we started at 10 o'clock. Somewhere in every one of our minds, either in our heart, our attitude, or maybe in our actions, sin's already happened. I didn't see it. I didn't feel it. That's how pervasive sin is. We can have sinful motives and not even know that was a sinful motive. That was a sinful thought. I have a sinful attitude towards my spouse. I have a sinful attitude towards my children, towards another church person, whatever it might be. Folks, it's everywhere. And yet until we live yielded to the new man, you're going to allow it to rain. I'm going to allow it to rain. The very entire spirit of the gospel is opposed to this idea of continuing to sin because God is gracious. It's a horrible suggestion <clears throat> that something so graciously given by God should lead a person to say, okay, because God's grace is so good, I'm going to sin more against it. This is not true against, this is not true for every situation. But a lot of times we, we try to comfort ourselves by these words. When somebody appears to move away from God, they, were, they, were, they looked on the outside like they were believers, but then they suddenly are away from God. We always automatically assume, well, they're just backslidden. Sometimes they were never converted at all. And by the way, since when did just being backslidden, since when is that just a, well, that's not so bad then. To a person who has tasted the divine grace of God, to be backslidden away from the glories of what God has given to you, that's a terrible condition to be in. 
But we do that to try to soften the blow of thinking maybe that loved one, maybe that family member, maybe that friend, maybe they're not truly converted at all. Yet the, 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 even just the, the, the simple suggestion is degrading to think that I would take a gracious statement of God and turn it into something to fulfill the desires of my own flesh. Sin is to be mortified at once, right now. I'll, I'll deal with this Monday morning. No, now, deal with it now. Kill it now. If sinners who came to Christ have been saved from sin, then it would be a complete abomination and a complete misinterpretation of the Scripture to talk of being saved from sin, yet saying, but I still want to continue in it. It doesn't even make sense. And yet, yet that's what Paul was being accused of. Paul later goes on to show that believers in Christ are not going to allow themselves to continue in that sin, nor should they allow others to continue in that sin. Paul is very pressing in the necessity. That's where we're going to go with this next week. He's very pressing in the necessity of holy living. He doesn't explain away free grace. He doesn't try to explain away sin. He doesn't give any excuses. He shows that the connection between our justification, which means our standing legally before God, and our holiness of living cannot be separated. In other words, if you're justified, you cannot keep living in sin and be okay with it. You can't. Does he mean sinless perfection? No. Sometimes our great prayer request that we need before something else, and again, I think it's important we should pray for one another. But sometimes our greatest prayer request ought to be, God, help me to kill this sin. I mean, I'm not trying to convict you through my intellect this morning and my reasoning, but I mean, when's the last time you actually prayed, God, I want this sin, I want this sin gone. I want it dead. I want it killed. See, we'll come to God with all the things we want Him to give us, but we won't give up that sin. We'll just keep holding on to it. God, heal this person. Cure this. Bring us this. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your goodness. But in the back of our mind, we've got this sin that's just there. And we say, I don't want to give that up. I want all the blessings of grace, but I want to keep on sinning because... That old man in me likes it. Paul, along with God himself, of course, absolutely abhorred sin. Continuing in sin that grace may abound sickened Paul. It should sicken us. True believers are dead to sin Therefore, they ought not to follow after it or even think it's okay to follow after it. No person in the human realm, think about this humanly for a minute, no person can be alive and dead at the same time. There's no such thing as a person who's dead and alive at the same time. You're either dead to sin or you're alive in sin. Paul's drawing a line. If you're a believer... 
you're dead to sin. If you're not a believer, you're still alive. You're still living in that sin. Paul says, it's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. It is a unregenerate, this is a bold statement, but it is an unregenerate person who would rather be dead in sin. An unregenerate person would rather be dead. But an unregenerate person would also still be dead in their sin if they think they can live in sin and at the same time be alive unto God. You cannot be both. The believer is supposed to live a holy life unto God. Shall we continue in sin? Paul answers the question by saying, God forbid. Let's pray together.